Good morning, Crosstown. What was that? <laughs> I want to welcome all of our locations as well as our online viewers. We're so glad that you guys are with us. If you're new, my name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor, and we're in part two of our message series on the Gospel of Luke. Last week, what did we talk about? One word. What did we talk about? See, that's the problem. Sometimes we don't remember what is said in church. Repentance. Someone remember repentance. This week, I want to talk about temptation. All that to say, we're starting 2022 off with all the feel-good messages, right? Repentance, temptation. What does the Bible say about this? Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. So if you have your Bible with you, or perhaps you have your journal Bible with you, you can go ahead and open that up. Uh, perhaps at some of our locations, we have some extra free journal Bibles for you if you want to grab those. Uh, as long as supplies last, you can get those. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen. And as I said, I want to talk about temptation because this is relevant to every single one of us today. Every single day, you and I are faced with this idea of doing what is wrong or doing what is right. Every single day, we're tempted to say, think, and do things that dishonor God, that hurt other people, or that derail our life's mission that Jesus Christ has given to us. Or we're tempted not to say things that love God, honor people, and protect the mission that God has for our life. And so we need to get a grasp on what temptation is all about, what does the Bible say, and look at Jesus who gives us the great example, not just an example as we'll see, but a substitute for us so that we can overcome temptation. So let's talk about this word temptation. Temptation, what I want you to see first and foremost, is both inside and outside. It's twofold. And a lot of times we think that temptation is just outside of us, right? They made me do it, or they tempted me, she tempted me, they tempted me. The devil made me do it. We've heard of that, right? But is that true? If we're followers of Jesus, can the devil really make us do anything? So where does this temptation really come from, biblically speaking, first and foremost? I would suggest to you today that temptation is really inside of us. It's something that the Bible talks about in James chapter 1, in verse 14, it says, but each person is tempted when he is lured, he or she is lured or enticed by his own desire. Um, just as LeBron James doesn't need help dunking a basketball, you don't need help sinning, right? We do this naturally. It's something within us. It's, it's our nature to sin, to rebel, to walk away from God. And so we need to get a grip on how to, how to deal with that. We're going to talk about that today. But it's not just within us because of our nature, we sin by choice and by our nature. It's also something from without. And this is where Satan comes into the picture. Satan is described in these terms in the Bible. He says, the Bible says, you are, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. God's character is truth. Satan's character, as we're going to see, is lies. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar. And here's what the Bible says about Satan. The father of lies. Now, why is that relevant? For us, every time we choose to believe a lie, it always leads to a path of sin. Think about what, what lies usually look like in our culture. Addiction, for example. Well, it's not going to hurt anybody else. How many times have people said that? It's just my thing, my problem. I'm not hurting anybody else. No one needs to know about it. But is that true? It's a lie. Or... In order for me to find intimacy in this life, to find that special someone, God's not really putting anyone in my path. What do I have to do? I have to compromise. That's a lie. Lies come from the enemy. 
Do a paternity test on any single lie, and the father will always be who? The devil. The devil. He feeds us these lies so that we fall into these temptations and we dishonor God and hurt other people. So first and foremost today, I want you to see that you really have an enemy. If you're a follower of Christ, you have an opponent. You have an enemy. You have an adversary that wants to do harm to you. So you have an enemy. What does this enemy look like? Well, there's a few verses that I'll share with you. John chapter 10, verse 10 is like the mission statement for the devil. He's described as the thief. What does a thief do? He robs, he steals, right? So his mission statement is to steal, kill, and destroy everything that matters to the heart of God. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to ruin your relationships. And when it comes to our church and churches, our campuses, he wants to take the church down. He wants to shipwreck our body of Christ by putting seeds of division within it. That's our enemy. Elsewhere, we see in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter tells us to be watchful. Your adversary, your opponent, your enemy, the devil prowls around and I like how he says he's like a roaring lion. He's actually like a kitten, but his picture is a lion. He's roaring, but he doesn't have any power. But he wants to do harm to your life. And I just want to encourage our church, just from the outset of this message, as we look at Luke chapter 4, with this thought. While the devil cannot touch your soul, he would love to destroy your life. He has some power. He doesn't have eternal power, but he has some power, and he wants to destroy your life. Thank God that he cannot touch our soul. We need to be more in line with what Scripture says, though, and continue to follow him. Um, kind of like a, 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 you know, understanding the enemy. It's kind of like a football game or a sports analogy. You've got the Bills playing who today? The Jets. the Jets. Big game, right? Big game. We need this game. There's, there's two ways that the Bills could approach the Jets. They can overestimate their enemy, Right? Oh, we're playing the Jets. I don't know why they would ever say this, right? We're playing the Jets. They're not afraid of the Jets, right? But if they were, they would live in fear. They wouldn't take the field. Or they could underestimate their enemy, leaving themselves very vulnerable to attack because they didn't take the enemy seriously. What we need to do with our enemy, the devil, is live right between these two lines, right? We don't overestimate and live in fear. We don't underestimate and don't take them seriously, leaving us vulnerable. We have to have an accurate assessment of who our enemy actually is. The real person who is a real threat, who wants to take out God's people who love Jesus. So today I want to share with you kind of three things that from this passage we learn. The first thing that we're going to look at is um, the, the devil's playbook. Every opponent has a playbook, and it's always more beneficial for us to learn the enemy's plays so that we're not susceptible to them. Then we're going to look at Jesus' game plan to overcome that playbook. And then I want to show you at the end of the message that this is not just a battle between Jesus and Satan that we see in the desert in Luke chapter 4. It's actually a battle for us, our righteousness, our salvation, that Jesus does for us what we could not do for ourselves. So let's look at number one. The devil has a playbook. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, here's what the Bible says. Uh, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. Something very important that we're going to come back to in a second. In the wilderness, for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, this might be the, the biggest understatement in the entire Bible, he was hungry, right? 40 days? Are you kidding me? 40 minutes and I'm hungry. Four minutes and my, my seven-year-old is hungry, continuous eating. This is a huge temptation. This is a huge moment of vulnerability that Jesus um, experiences in the desert. Verse 3 says this. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone, which there would have been many, to become 
piping hot loaves of bread. Can you imagine how vulnerable and how, how um, drawn out of comfort Jesus would have been in this moment? And here's what I want you to see that the devil is doing. The, the first play that he does is this. He wants us to get us to a place of discontentment. He wants you to get to be discontent with your life. Um, notice something about this passage. Who is the one that led Jesus out into the desert? It was the devil, right? Devil led him out, trapped him. Is that true? Why? What does the Bible say? It was the spirit. Look at this. The, the spirit led um, Jesus out into the desert. And then he was tempted by the devil. The Spirit's mission was to bring Jesus out to that desert on purpose. He had a specific mission for him to prepare him for what was going to come or the cross. Satan's tactic, though, was to draw him out of a spirit of, dis- of, of contentment and into a spirit of discontentment. Oh, you see that stone over there? That could be so good. That would, been, that would be good bread. Why don't you do that? Now, could Jesus have done that? Absolutely. He turned water into wine. He could turn a stone into bread, right? But the point was this, he didn't need it. He was sustained, as we'll learn later, he was sustained by the very words of God. That was the bread of life that Jesus had. He didn't need anyone else to do for him what God the Father was promised to do for him. That God the Father was sustaining him, refreshing him, strengthening him. And Satan's tactic was to say, maybe you should take matters into your own hands. Maybe God is holding out on you. Maybe there's something that you need that God has not provided. Can you relate to this, church? Has there ever been a point in your life where you're looking around at your circumstances and say, I wish things were different, instead of just rejoicing the fact that God has gotten you this far, he's with you in this moment? We do this a lot of times, ladies and men. You get to a point in your life where you're late 20s, 30s, 40s, and you're still waiting around for that special someone. What's the temptation? Become discontent, right? And then you start making compromises. You start acting on your own behalf rather than waiting on God. And so that's what, this, that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to draw us out of a, a spirit of contentment in God, dependability on God, into a place where we're resentful towards God. God must be holding out on you because he hasn't provided this, this, and this in your life. Rather than look around and say, God, thank you for what you've done. I'm here because of your love. Can I ask you this question? Can I ask you this question? How are you tempted to want what you don't have right now? In what area of your life are you continually looking out on the horizon, wondering if, wishing for, hoping that God would do something, but he's not, rather than just being content with what God has for you in this season? It's a great question. That's the first play that I think we see within this passage. The second play that we see that Satan throws at Jesus is this. And we'll look, no, we'll go back. Verse um, verse 4, Luke chapter 4, verse 4. Five and seven. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Next slide. And, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. Now, now stop right there. Go back to verse six. Doesn't Jesus already have all the authority and all the glory? So that's interesting. And then verse seven says this If you, then, that's the formula. If you, then, will worship me, it will all be yours. If you, then. The second play that Satan wants to throw at us and what he throwed at Jesus is this. He wants Jesus to take a shortcut. 
Satan would love for us to, to, to take a shortcut, to get us to take a shortcut. And he does it this way. He promises something. This is true in the, the Garden of Adam and Eve. This is true in the desert. It's true with us. He promises something that's always contingent on our compromise. You want intimacy in this culture? You can have it. You just have to compromise sexually. You want to be popular in school, teenagers? It's really easy. Be the kid who gossips, spreads rumors, talks about people. You can get, with, you can get in with anybody. It's compromise. He'll always promise you something, but it's dependent on a compromise. You want to retire and travel the world? You could probably do that, but it's going to require a lifetime of living with no generosity and sharing and love within your life. You can do that. You can be really productive in this world if you don't have a quiet time, if you don't spend time in prayer. You see what I'm saying? You can compromise, and there will be a worldly blessing to it, but you're compromising your faith as a result. One of the things I want you to see when, when Satan shows um, Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, and he's, he's tempting him in a specific way. Uh, Jesus, the truth is, Jesus came to rule and reign over a kingdom, but it wasn't an earthly kingdom. It was an invisible kingdom. He, he came to rule and reign in his believers' hearts until we get to heaven, and then there will be a, a physical kingdom that all people will see, and all knees will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But until we, until we get to that point, something had to happen. And that was the cross. He had to go to the cross in order to establish his kingdom that would come. He had to bleed and die for the forgiveness of sins for his people to pay for our guilt. And Satan comes along and says, yeah, I think I have a better way. In fact, I have a shorter way. You can have all these kingdoms. You can have all the authority. You can have all the glory and you can skip all that pain if you will just take this one shortcut. Can I ask you a question? Where in your life are you tempted to take those shortcuts? You're facing a hard situation, but it would be easier if you compromised your faith in that situation. Rather than be committed, depend on God, and actually be obedient to what the scripture says. Every single week, I guarantee, we're faced, all different situations, we're faced with situations where it'd be easier to go against what the Bible says, and it wouldn't be as tough in this world, but you would be compromising your faith. You would be taking the shortcut. And Jesus says, no way. There is no shortcut. I have to go to the cross. Now, there's a, there's a third play that, that Satan throws at Jesus as well, and we see this in Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. The Bible says that he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. Verse 11, And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, there's all kinds of things going on here. There's all kinds of plays that Satan throws at Jesus. One of the biggest, which is twisting Scripture. He's continuing to do that. He did that in the garden. He's twisting Scripture. He's sharing lies because he's the father of lies. But one of the things I think that we see in that specific passage is this. Play number three is this. He will make us question our identity. Satan will love to make you question your identity. You remember that phrase in verse 9 where it says, if, if, you are the son of God. That's the second time in this passage where Satan says, if you, he's in front of Jesus, he's, he's the son of God, and yet he has the audacity to say, if you are the son of God. Satan would love 
to make Jesus question his identity. And what's ironic about that is one chapter earlier in chapter 3 of Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 3, remember what happened? The scene is Jesus isn't in the desert. He's down by the Jordan River. And what is he doing there? He's getting baptized, right, by John the baptizer. And there, the spirit um, descends like a dove on Jesus, and there's a voice from heaven. And what does the voice say? You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is a heavenly picture of God the Father looking down at his son and affirming him, putting the heavenly identity on his son. And Satan would love for nothing more to strip away that identity in this temptation in the desert. And the truth is he does that to us as well. We're tempted to believe lies from the enemy. We're tempted to believe something that is not true of our identity after Christ. Church, we are not defined by our B.C., character, our BC moments, our before Christ life, we are defined by what God says to us now. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. You know what that means? You're not the sinner anymore. You're the saint. You're not a child of wrath anymore. You're a child of God. You're not an orphan. You're adopted. You're not a slave. You're, you're free. We're the opposite of what we once were, not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done for us and through us. And yet so often we respond to situations and we live our life out of a false identity. We believe the lies of the enemy that we can never be forgiven of what we've done in the past. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with people in my office who have really struggled to get past their past because they had this nagging feeling that God can never forgive them. And I've heard some real bad stories of what people have done, and they've been honest enough to share those, those moments in their life where they failed, they walked away from God, they did something that they wish they never would have done. And yet I still have to pull out the Bible and remind them, you are a new creation. That's what you once were. And even, bef- even after becoming a Christian, you have the forgiveness of Christ. You're not condemned. You're redeemed. You're forgiven. You're saved. And yet too often people walk through life putting on this false identity and allowing Satan to lie to them. And it's horrible. You are a new creation. So answer the question today. Who are you? Do you know who you are? Have you allowed the voice of the enemy to to define you that you're a failure, you're a disappointment, you're a piece of garbage, your value only comes from what you do? Right? Right? That's not you. You're a citizen of heaven. And while you're on this earth, you actually are embodying the Holy Spirit. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're a child of God. You're not lost. You're not a lost cause. God loves you. He actually calls you over and over in the Bible, beloved, beloved. Stop believing a lie. Do not let anyone or anyone, anything else in this life define who you are except for Christ Jesus. Amen? So, Luke chapter Four, verse 13, I want to show you one more thing. The Bible says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. One of the things I want you to see, church, is that your enemy, this opponent, this adversary, he's an opportunist. Okay? Which means this. You're on top of the world. We sang some worship songs. You're probably good today. Maybe good tomorrow, then something's going to happen Tuesday afternoon, right? Maybe Friday morning. 
He's going to wait for the right time when you're weak and vulnerable, when you're hurried and worried. He's going to wait for the right time when your spouse and you have a fight. And he can slip right in when you're late to church next Sunday, right? And he can get into that car and start creating some dissentment in, in, the, in the midst of the two of you. He's going to do it when you're lazy with your Bible reading, when you're, you're neglectful in prayer. He's going to wait for the right opportunity, and then he will strike. This wasn't the only temptation that Jesus faced. He came back. The, 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 the ones that we see here in Luke chapter 4 are kind of like the highlight reel, ESPN highlight reel. There's so many others that we can't even say. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way. He was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. And so we need to know what the enemy has, is going to throw at us. Jesus' counterpunch to this temptation is simple. The, the, the game plan is simple that Jesus has. It's a one punch, and, and, and we see this in James chapter 4, verse 7, where the Bible says this, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's a biblical promise. That's a biblical promise that we have, that if we fight against the devil because we're in Christ Jesus, he'll flee. The, the point is this. Don't give up. Don't give up. Go another round with Satan. Just keep swinging. Don't give in. Don't embrace that you've lost. Know that Christ Jesus has gained the victory for you over sin, but you can keep fighting. The only time we lose is this. The only time we lose is when we quit resisting. Too often, too many Christians just give up. And the reason why they give up is they believe that false identity, I'm always going to be a sinner. So I might, might as well just give up. I can tell you personally, the times when I've believed lies, when I've put on that false identity, are the times when I'm more prone to sin because I believe what's the use, this is who I'm always going to be, rather than embracing what God has said about me. And so the only time you lose is when you quit resisting in this life. So what does this, this resistance specifically look like? Well, this is where Jesus' game plan comes into play in this passage. And the first plan that he has is this. He says to know your Bible. Know your Bible. Uh, Jesus knew his Bible, but you know who else knew Jesus' Bible? You know who also knows our Bible? Satan. In fact, he knows, Satan knows more scripture than I do. Satan knows more scripture than any of the campus pastors or the elders. Satan knows more scripture than a Bible professor. If you've got how many Bible degrees, it doesn't matter. Satan's probably in a Bible study right now with some warm bread and around, you know, his small groups around all the demons. And he's studying the scriptures and he's trying to find a verse that will trip you up, that he can take out of context and he can make you believe a lie. He knows it, which is why Jesus responds by quoting what? He looks at the lie and he says the only way to defeat a lie is to expose the truth. Look at what he says four, uh, three times in verse 4, 8, and 12. He says, and Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. My substance comes from God. And Jesus answered in verse 8, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. God is king, not you. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is written, it is written, it is said. He doesn't come up with some fancy, you know, game plan to try to trick Satan, you know, some special holy water or something. What does he do? He quotes a Bible verse. And then he says it's done. It's over. This is what God says. He knows the truth, therefore he's able to expose the lie. He knows what's false, 
Therefore, he can identify what's true. Here's the thing. Jesus knew Satan pretty well. We don't know Satan that well. The truth is, when we read scriptures, there's not a whole lot to be said about Satan. It says some things about Satan, but the Bible's primarily not about Satan. It's about God. The thing is, you don't need to be an expert in something that's false or the father of lies to know what's actually true. I'll give you an example. Um, if, if Aaron were here and uh, she walked in with Aiden, Ethan, Owen, and Josiah, my four kids, right? But yet it was not Aaron. It was a, a really good lookalike. Had blonde hair, you know, cute jacket. She walks in with our kids. From a distance, all of you would probably be fooled from a distance. If you were at the other campuses and you saw her there, you might be fooled. But you know who wouldn't be fooled? Me. Maybe her mom and her brother. They wouldn't be fooled. Why? It's because we're experts on someone who's a really good lookalike of my wife Erin? Or is it I just know the real Erin? I know the truth, right? Therefore, I can expose the lie. So Jesus knows his Bible. He quotes his Bible, believes the Bible. He preaches the Bible. That's what we do. We believe the Bible. We quote the Bible. We study the Bible so that we can be ready. So that when Satan comes along and he says, you should, you should pursue this worldly pleasure. We can say, no, no, no. I have a greater joy than what this world has to offer. We know the Bible so that when we're tempted, we can know God's truth. When Satan comes at us and says, you were once this. You should be ashamed of what you once were. This is what you did. God will never forgive you. You can quote the Bible and say, no, I'm forgiven. I'm a new creation. I'm a child of God. When you start worrying about finances and money and security, you say, well, wait a minute. That's a lie. I don't need to worry about that. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. When you're in a situation where it seems like there's no other alternative but to give into sin, because the temptation is so strong and you don't see any way out, you remember something that the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Remember what he says? He says this, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know what the Bible is? It's the way of escape. The Bible is how we know God or Satan's lies that he throws at us so that we can overcome temptation just like Jesus did. We have to know it. The second thing that he, that he teaches us is this. Jesus depends on the Holy Spirit. He depends on the Holy Spirit. Um, look at these two bookends in verse uh, 1 and verse 14. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Remember that from the beginning of the story. Jump to the end in verse 14. 14 it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. So he's led by the Spirit. He returns in the power of the Spirit. The point is this. Jesus overcame sin by relying on the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking if Jesus needed to do that, we might need to as well. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Jesus was the second member of the Trinity. Jesus is God. This must not have been that hard for Jesus, right? Well, it is true. James tells us that God cannot be tempted. So when Jesus says, divine nature, his godly nature, he cannot be tempted. But was Jesus only just God while on this earth? No, the Bible teaches us that he had a dual nature. He was both fully God and fully man. Read Philippians. Fully God and fully man. At the same time, he didn't 
he emptied his kingly rights as God, but he didn't stop being God while on this earth. So when Jesus was tempted in this story, was he tempted as God or man? He was tempted as fully man. This was an actual temptation. He's fully man, and he chooses to take on this temptation as a man. And the reason why he was over able to overcome this temptation is because of the Holy Spirit's role in his life. And yet we face temptation, and half of us don't even think about the Holy Spirit. We're okay with God the Father, Jesus the Son. There's a great book, I, think, I forgot who, who wrote it, but it's called The Forgotten God. The Forgotten God. The Holy Spirit. Who we wake up and invite the Holy Spirit into our life to help us overcome temptation, realizing that according to Scripture, Holy Spirit's role is to convict the world of sin, to bring unbelievers to repentance in Jesus, and to lead, guide, feed, strengthen, empower us as his people, and to convict us of sin. Do we welcome him into our life? You know, what's what's good news about this is you don't have to overcome temptation on your own. The same spirit that led Jesus to overcome temptation lives in you. The same spirit, if we can pull this up, the same spirit that led and empowered Jesus literally lives inside of you, believer. So you're not facing this battle alone, which is why every single one of us need to rely on God's word, and being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Every single one of us needs to know God's word and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome this. Now, those are the first two points of what I'm seeing in Luke chapter 4. If you just stopped there, there's a huge problem. If we dismiss church right now and I said, you know, um, Satan's got a a playbook and he's going to throw every play at you to try to derail your life and destroy your life. But yet, good news is, Jesus has got a game plan. So, good luck. You know how crushing that would be? Because, I don't know if you notice this, there's a pattern to temptation that you and I have fallen into throughout the course of our lives. And here's the pattern. Satan seeks to destroy you. Jesus gives you the strategy to resist. And we mess it up again and again. That's, that's, the, that's the pattern of temptation. Maybe you're all perfect, but that's kind of been my... My experience with temptation. Satan wants to destroy my life. Jesus gives me the wisdom of his word, and yet I still find a way to mess it up again and again. So if you just stopped in the first two points, the problem is, even if you were perfect from this point forward in your life, which is not possible, but let's say it was, even if you were perfect, you still lost to the enemy before. You still faltered, you still failed, you still sinned. And so... That leads us to the third point, the third thing that I want to share with you today, and that is this. While, we, while the Satan has a playbook, Jesus has a game plan, we have a substitute. We have a substitute. What I want you to see from this passage is you don't just need some good advice. Here's what you need. You need some good news. You need some gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. You don't need a new strategy for trying to overcome temptation in your life. You actually need a substitute to do for you what you could not do for yourself, and you've proved it over and over and over again. Um, If you look at the Old Testament, there's this neat parallel between uh, the redemptive history of Israel and what we see in the New Testament. If you know the story of the Exodus, uh, God's people were slaves for 400 years, and God frees them. You know the story of Moses, the Red Sea, parts of the Red Sea. God promises them the promised land. All they had to do was take the promised land. They send some spies in, 
Some of the spies were not faithful and didn't have enough courage. And so because of their disobedience, they wandered around in the desert for how many years? Forty. Fast forward to the New Testament, we see Jesus in the desert for how many days? Forty. As if to show us what we couldn't do because of our disobedience, Jesus does for us. Jesus does for us what we could not do for ourselves, and he proves that he has the victory over Satan himself. And so these 13 verses, when you look at them, they're not about primarily, they're not about God versus Satan. You know, that kind of seems like this is what's going on. Like, oh, there's a question whether or not Jesus will overcome Satan. There is no question about that. Jesus was, it was never in doubt that Jesus would win this victory, that Jesus would crush his opponent. That was fulfilled. It was a promise that happened way back in Genesis chapter 3, and Jesus was going to make sure that happened. But what was in question was whether or not we would succeed. What you need to feel in this story is that Jesus had to come out of this temptation after 40 days unscathed and perfect in every way. Because three years later, he had to go to the cross as an innocent man to pay the penalty for our guilt. And if that doesn't happen, Satan has us. Satan has us. And so the message of this passage and the message of Christianity is not, what would Jesus do? Now you go do it. You know how awful news that is? If every single week I said, you know, here's a good example of the Old Testament character. He did this and this and this. And you're a David. Go defeat your Goliath. And you should be more like Paul and Peter. You know how crushing that would be to give you a bunch of to-do lists to say this is what you need to do in life to be successful and to be a good Christian. This is what Jesus did. Now you should just go do what Jesus did. That would be so crushing. That wouldn't be good news. That would be horrible news. But the gospel is not try harder. It's trust him more. It's not achieving, it's believing in what Jesus did for us. And, and so we don't look at Jesus and say, I need to do better. That's not what we say. We look at Jesus and say, there is no one better. The, the primary application of this passage is not, a, not to get us to take inventory of how we struggle with sin and how we're, we're dealing with temptation and how we need to do better. The prime, those are all good things. But the primary application is this. You need to behold Jesus. Because Jesus was the only one that overcame Satan. He was the only one that's perfect. The only thing that we should do as a result of this passage is say, I couldn't do that, but Jesus did for me. He loves me. And now he's calling me a child of God. I get to be with him. I love, I love that Jesus shows that Jesus overcome our enemy by being our substitute. Jesus overcame our enemy by being our substitute. So I was thinking about some application for this morning of what we can do as a result of what we heard. And you know the one thing that I thought of? It's not just to do a bunch of to-do lists. It's simply this. It's simply to worship. I love what Martin Luther once said. He said these words when faced with temptation and just, you know, the spiritual battle and spiritual warfare. He said this to some people. He said, come, let us sing a psalm and drive away the devil. I've read before. Um, let us worship to spite the devil. You know what happens when we gather together as a church full of believers and we sing songs of praise? Even when every single one of us has represented a week of turmoil and trouble and temptation, we get to just shout back at Satan to say, yours is not the victory. Jesus has already won the war. 
and I'm ready to do battle. And the, the, here's how I'm going to do battle. I'm going to know my, my Bible. I'm going to depend on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to put on my true identity in Christ. And I'm not going to believe the father of lies anymore. So with that said, I know here at our campus in Greece, we're going to respond uh, through worship and communion. Perhaps you guys have already done that at the other campuses. But whatever you do in communion or worship, when we sing, let's celebrate the victories already won, that Jesus Christ is victorious, and we get to ride on his coattails. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this truth, this example that we read in your word, Lord. You are so good. You overcame Satan, all of his tactics. You clung to your identity that God the Father gave to you, Lord. You knew your word. You relied on the Holy Spirit. You do serve for us a great example, Lord, but more than just being a good example, we need some good news. More than just a positive strategy in life, we need, we need a substitute. So I pray for anyone in here that doesn't know you as their Savior, as their substitutionary atonement that makes us right with you by the blood of Jesus, that they would come to know you, to love you, and to serve you. And for those of us that do know you, Lord, I pray that each and every day we would respond by fighting the good fight of faith, by continuing to resist, but we do that by surrendering fully to you, by knowing for sure that you, Lord Jesus, were victorious, that you overcame sin, Satan, and death so that we could be free and forgiven, so that we could be adopted into the family of God. Lord, thank you for our identity. Thank you for your love for us. We love you, and we ask that this time of worship would be glorifying to you in every way. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.